Welcome to the Two-Year Bible, a custom-designed two-year Bible reading plan with a weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case. I'm pastor of Resonate Church, and I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, the executive director here at Resonate. Hey, everybody. And we're glad to that you are joining us. Hopefully, this first week of reading has been great. You are reading sections of text that are like some of the most important <laughs> setup uh, for the rest of Scripture. Uh, Genesis 1-3 through is a huge piece of how you will continue to read Scripture, how to continue to understand Scripture. And so, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty significant text that you are starting with, and let alone the birth stories, the Christmas stories of, of, of Luke. And so hopefully this week has been good. Hopefully you've seen things maybe you haven't seen before. You've read through texts that uh, sometimes we have uh, even a lullaby effect around of, of how the story begins. And uh, I've seen things that I think hopefully have deepened your understanding of who God is and how he interacts with this world and what he's called us to. So why don't we start Right from the beginning. Uh, I won't cover necessarily a lot of uh, the questions around the background of Genesis, of who wrote it and when and why. Uh, it's a pretty complicated conversation. I would encourage you, if you haven't watched it already, to watch the Bible Project's video on Genesis. Uh, it's good at giving a layout, and they uh, and they go into a little bit of the question of authorship. And then, uh, so let's just start in chapter one. Yeah. So, so how do we start, Sarah? Well, I think we should start with the first verse. Of the <laughs> That's first a good chapter. place to start. <laughs> In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this tells us a lot if we stop and pause and really look at it. First of all, it tells us who the subject is. We're talking here about God, which is going to inform the rest of the way we read scripture. This is a book about God. And we are playing a part in it, but we're gonna, we need to approach our Bible reading like we're reading about God. And then we see that God created the heavens and the earth. And here we understand that Israel was getting this when they had just come out of Egypt and they had been living in a land for 400 years that worshipped the heavens and worshiped the earth and worshiped different parts of creation. So here we're seeing a distinction that we don't worship the things themselves, but we worship the creator of those things. Yeah, that's a pretty important distinction, particularly uh, around the cultures of the ancient Near East. Uh, one thing I, I uh, have learned to appreciate and uh, kind of got this during one of my professors at seminary was kind of looking at a little bit of the structure of Genesis 1, that and maybe you noticed this, maybe you didn't, but uh, there's there's some peculiarities in the, in the story. You have God, uh, the story initially say that uh, the earth was formless and void, but w- what we find God immediately do is uh, to start providing form. He spends day one, day two, day three giving form to things. He, he separates the skies and the seas. He makes land. He uh, creates uh, light and darkness, and then he fills those things. So he gives a form, and then he fills the void with the sun and the moon and birds and fish and uh, uh, land animals and eventually humanity, which uh, itself kind of stands out in uh, the way the structure works. So you have this, uh, what's called a framework, a a picture of what it looks like uh, for God to to take something that was formless and void and provide form and filling. And God does that. God does that in order. And and not only that, but there's a lot of poetry um, overlay uh, to how Genesis 1 really works. That Actually, most scholars would, would argue that Genesis 1 itself is poetic in its form. And so um, that 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 gets into sort of the question of what what are we supposed to do with Genesis one and even talking in our primer about the West versus East like I think sometimes we're we're like but how does it happen how how did these yeah. things come to be what, what was it twenty four hour days was it a thousand years what is it and and I think Genesis one its primary role is to say okay we have a God 
a singular God. And he's not part of creation, but he is the creator. And not only that, but he creates with purpose and meaning, and he does it. And not only that, um, uh, and he has reason and, 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 and logic and, and, and sort of a flow, and, and he's not doing it haphazardly. But there's also, the, um, and this is an important thing to kind of get to at the beginning, it's this thing called a, a chiasm in chapter one. Uh, and, and it's a literary device that ancient people used where often we would probably put uh, a header on the top of things like this is the main point and then include paragraphs underneath. Ancient people didn't necessarily always write that way. One of the ways that they would commonly uh, want you to kind of draw out the main point or the main idea was actually to put it kind of in the middle. And then they would uh, kind of mirror phrases around it, uh, that there would be similar phrases uh, on the top and the bottom. So you come across a sentence that sounds super familiar, it's as if you read it before, um, that you would jump back and see that in the text. You would see that um, and, and, and then kind of look around it and see similar phrases that kind of mirror each other. Um, and I'll, we'll include an example of this in the notes, but but kind of get towards um, the middle where there would be this one sentence that really doesn't have a mirror, that that is essentially uh, the, the point, the goal, the, the main thing that the author is after. And, and I would argue in, in Justice 1 that the chiasm, you've already read it, but the chiasm centers around the very first statement that it was good, that God's creation was good, which is an essential thing to say. We're saying so much in chapter one, that God's creator, God made all things, that God does this in a, with a system and a plan and an idea, and it was good. What God created, the first thing we should know about creation is that it was good. But part of that, we also find out that man, woman are created. Yeah. yeah so in verse 26, we be, see a big shift in the language before, and God said, let there be, and God said, let there be. And now in verse 26, we see, then God said, let us make. So there's a change and a focus, and there's really a standing out the significance of what it means for God to create mankind in his own image. Yeah. And I think it's even important to note, um, the, the distinction of, of man and woman created in this part of the story that just about uh, every other ancient Near East culture has a creation story of its own, but uh, almost all of them uh, put the women, uh, the, the creation of women as like a, a, a total secondary thing or created subservient. Or, yes. Yeah. And, and the first thing we hear about the creation of man and woman is that they're created both as image bearers, that there's an equality in dignity and worth uh, to the men and women and that would have been an absolutely countercultural thing for just about every other culture around them uh, and how significant that truly is. We're going to hear distinctions as the story goes, but the, the first thing you should know about man and woman is that they're created equally in the image of God. Yeah, and then to increase or add, validate, I guess, or affirm the dignity we see in verse 28, the, what is the first thing God does? God blesses them. And then he gives them what we call the creation mandate or the cultural mandate, which is going to come up a few more times. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. They have a role to play in God's creation as his image bearers. Yeah, and and just to re- reflect on the cultural mandate, uh, there's a lot of ways that um, that statement's not simply about let go go out and have a bunch of kids. That um, their their role is to take what is potential in the creation creative world and and to unleash 
God's plan for that. Yeah. Uh, to take what God has given them as a responsibility and and to cultivate it, to make it uh, productive, to make it um, ultimately for God's glory, and and to to do that in in the creation that has the potential for that. And so, yeah, that's their role. Uh, yeah, and that I mean that's made even more clear in chapter two, which we'll get to. But it's clear that the land had not yet been cultivated, so God created something for them to do. Yep. I think the other thing to notice with the language here in the cultural mandate is that the language changes from God creating to God commanding. He's starting to give instruction and direction. Yeah. Uh, And we're certainly going to get some more instruction by chapter two because God creates a garden. We get another sort of creation story. Uh, Maybe it's a zoom in on chapter six. Maybe it's uh, a little bit of a multiple authorship. That's a long debate, but we get the the chapter two story where we have a garden and we've got trees in the garden and there's all these sort of hints towards a temple, but we'll cover that when we get to the temple and the tabernacle. But um, we we get this creation of the space that uh, will be where uh, Adam is initially created and he's given a task to start naming animals. Uh, there's, there's no helpmate found suitable for him. And, and he, he names all these animals and um, God puts him through the task. Why do you think God kind of gives him this task? Yeah, I think God is really intentional about, we see in the scripture, God identifies that there's not a suitable helpmate for Adam, but Adam doesn't know yet. And so he gives Adam the task of naming the animals so Adam can also see that everybody has something that is their same, but Adam does not yet have his same and that there's a need for him. So for Adam to identify his need. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And uh, yeah, just because things were created good doesn't mean they were created perfect. There's definitely a different idea. Uh, And and it was created good, but Adam was still created with a need, and and that's the need here is is the helpmate, and so God fashions a helpmate. He and he does it uh, not by creating another person just straight out of dust, but he does it by actually taking part of Adam, uh, the out of, of the side of Adam, uh, and creating the female, and in so doing, um, have has actually sort of removed from Adam Eve, and uh, so what's missing now from man is, is woman. And, uh, the sort of picture of, of the fullness of God in humanity, um, is missing unless the man and the woman are there together. That's, and, and I think that's a huge lesson. That's not simply about talking about marriage and when two people to come together. No, but, but what's missing for man is woman. And, and the picture that we can't showcase the fullness of God in as image bearers, unless it's man and woman kind of together. And I think that's such a beautiful kind of picture in the creation story. Right. I think we're missing out on God's plan and purpose and design for us. If we believe that this passage is just speaking to husband and wife, there is a portion that's husband and wife, which comes up later in chapter two, but man and woman being created to work alongside one another is more than just within marriage. Let's talk real quick about what helper means. Yeah, let's talk about Azer, what it is and what it isn't. Yeah, so, so Azer basically means, it means helper, but I think sometimes we misunderstand that because we think of like mommy's little helper or an assistant or somebody or kind of a doormat in some regard. And helper in in Hebrew is Azer, which basically means to, it's it implies a sort of tension and a help against in some ways. Um, it's a really empowered and dignified role that it implies equal value. The only other time we see Azer used in scripture is when it's referring to God helping Israel. Yeah, so yeah. let's 
make sure we understand that uh, <laughs> it's not an undignified role. No, when God or uses it of less himself. valuable or important yes, or significant. Absolutely. And so, but then we move into chapter three, which is the saddest part of the story, particularly around creation, fall, redemption, restoration. This is the conflict. This is the downfall in the story, and we get um, we get the serpent showing up on the scene, which is talking and rational and not what we expect out of an animal and beast of the field, but um, it's interacting with Eve and it's asking questions and in some ways twisting a little bit and, and really challenging. Do they, do they really trust what God has said? Do they really believe what God has said? And um, yeah. And, and here we even already begin to see some sort of a reversal or rejection of, of God's command to give them dominion because Eve kind of turns around and gives di- dominion and authority and influence to the animal that she was initially given dominion over. Yeah, she starts listening and and really thinking through, well, do I trust God? Does God really want my, my best? Do, do I trust him? And that's I think that at, at the heart of the sin of the garden is really that. Um, do, do I trust what God has said about me, about himself, about... Uh, all the things and and um, and will I move forward with that or do I want my own decision making, my own authority, my own understanding of right and wrong, my own understanding of all those things and um, and ultimately Eve goes after that and and not to uh, to to dismiss Adam either. Adam's there, Adam's present. It seems from how the story's told that Adam's absolutely in that moment, but he's a total passive character, uh, which probably goes to the sin of many men uh, of, of what it looks like to, to be there and to be passive, and um, but also moves forward and eats of the of the same fruit, which probably isn't an apple, not to burst anybody's bubble. It's probably pomegranate or something else, but um, yeah, to eat of the fruit and. Uh, then they realize they're naked. There's some understanding of nakedness and shame. Uh, and then they try to cover up their own shame, uh, which is an interesting lesson too. They go out of their way to, to find fig leaves and to cover up their own nakedness. Like they realize there's something wrong, but they try to solve the problem themselves. Yeah. And it's insufficient. Them covering themselves up with these leaves. It's not an, an adequate covering. Well, at least God doesn't seem like it's adequate covering because God shows up and, and has this conversation with them and, and ultimately <clears throat> decides, to, to clothe them. Uh, God goes, uh, in, in through the death of an animal, which is this beautiful forward picture. The first death, the first bloodshed in scripture is God's, uh, sacrificing to cover the shame of Adam and Eve and, uh, covers them, clothes them, uh, and ultimately, uh, banishes them from this place, from his dwelling place in this garden. Yeah. Uh, quickly. I want to jump back to the curses yeah, though. Of and just, Mentioned that when we look at the curse to the serpent, there's nothing redemptive. There's no promise and there's no hope there. But the curse that Adam and Eve, and you know, I mean, are they really, the the serpent is cursed. We don't see necessarily the word curse. Yeah, like the ground is cursed for Adam. Right, and stuff yeah. Like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, we call them the curses. So um, there's hope for Adam and Eve. We see our first gospel promise in verse 18, the first gospel announcement that there will be one who is going to come and, and overcome the serpent. So Adam and Eve still have hope here. The serpent does not. And, and God provides that hope. God's, right. God's the one saying, look, like, don't, the story's not over yet. Like, there's there's hope, there's future. And, um, you got to imagine, though, by chapter two, by chapter four, when uh, Eve 
uh, bears a son, that there's, uh, there's sort of the, the expectation that hope has been fulfilled, that through Abel, oh, now the serpent crusher has been born. Our hope is here. Um, but we find out pretty quickly in chapter four that that is not the story that's going to be played out. Yeah. I mean, um, twice in chapter four, in verse one and in verse 25, she's like, this is the guy. I've, I've gotten a son with the help of the Lord. Right. This must be our redeemer. Yep. What a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> And, oh, and how, how angry might they have been at Cain? Like, you killed the serpent crusher. Uh, what are we going to do now? And, um, and so, yes, yeah, so we see sin play out, and we see it play out immediately in, in the family of Adam and Eve. And uh, sin seems to have a, a permeation beyond the first generation, and it's continuing. And uh, even worse, it's murder in this storyline. Um, and so uh, there's an increasing wickedness that we will uh, see kind of play out in these first few chapters of scripture. Yeah, it's interesting looking at uh, Lamech from verse 23 of chapter 4 and how he like writes a whole song about how wicked and evil he is, uh, even worse than Cain. So we see the increasing depravity and yet God in his great mercy, not because of us, but because of God and his plan to glorify his name, brings Noah from that line from Lamech and others. Yeah, and we see uh, genealogy. Uh, I would argue, as you read through, kind of bear with some of the genealogies. Some of them we'll we'll focus on a little bit more than others. But this one does include some repeating of Genesis one with image and likeness and cultural mandate and things like that. But then we get uh, to chapter six, and it's pretty clear uh, from how it talks that the sin has run its course and permeated like all of humanity. Uh, that humanity is is so jacked up, so broken, so sinful, so corrupt uh, that God um, weeps. He grieves in a way uh, as if like, you know, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, that God is grieving over what has happened. Uh, and uh, he, he wants to respond. He, he, out of the justice of God, he, he desires to respond. Um, and he's going to send this flood uh, that we will continue to read about this week, uh, but he's going to send this flood, which is significant. But <clears throat> he chooses a guy. Yeah, so he chooses Noah, who we see is has favor with God. He's righteous, blameless, and he walks with God. Who, When you think back to walking with God, we think of <laughs> Adam and Eve in the garden. Somebody else has walked with God. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and those, those callbacks are always fascinating to kind of connect. Okay, why, why, is, why is that important for Noah that, that we hear that he walked with God? Um, yeah, and so God will go through his process, but we'll deal with that uh, as we read uh, into chapters 7, 8 uh, in the next week. Yeah, I, I do think that this... This uh, passage in verse or in chapter six, talking about the culmination of wickedness and the total depravity, may cause us to think about some of our progressive beliefs that may not be so biblical. That we just <laughs> will continue to make the world a better and better place. And Scripture continually shows us that without the common grace of God and um, the specific grace of God, we would end up here as well. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really important. And there's even uh, conversations around um, other flood myths and other ways that people talk about the flood and uh, other historic uh, cultures that have flood stories. And um, it's it's still important to compare and contrast. I mean, do I believe that Noah was a historic figure? Yes, but um, 
the interesting thing is to, to read uh, some of those stories where uh, God is mad at sin and brokenness, the gods of the universe, and they come and they come to destroy man. And man ultimately somehow prevails over them by finding out certain information. But um, that's that's not the story of, of the God of the universe. That's not the story of Yahweh, who instead comes to... to, to to ultimately redeem, to, 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 um, recreate, to, to kind of set anew in some ways, uh, and then to, to preserve humanity in the process. He, he, he does bring this family and to say, no, 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 I'm, I'm in the process of recreation. I'm, I'm, yes, I'm going to judge sin, but, but I'm also interested in reestablishing, recreating, uh, this world. Yeah. And, and the ark was not only for Noah and his family. There was time and space for whoever wanted to get on the ark to get on the ark. It's just that Noah was the one who chose to do it. And if you were asking the question of where's Jesus in these questions, and which is always an important question to read, like where is that in the Noah story? Where's Jesus in that story? Yeah, so typically when we see large bodies of water in Scripture, there's usually some sort of judgment. And then we have this ark that there was a man who's blameless before God who was preserved from the flood. Uh, carried on the ark through the total destruction of the rest of the earth. And that's our Jesus story. Jesus is our ark, and he has carried us through the condemnation and death that we deserve because of his mercy. Yeah, ah, so good. So good. Um, we hope to do that on the podcast, too, because sometimes that's that's hard. As you, If you haven't done a lot of that exercise to read these stories and be like, where is Jesus in this story? Like, how do I fit this in, or how do I make sense of, of Jesus' redemption? So um, let's jump uh, to Luke. We're going to make a New Testament uh, transition here. Uh, and just to give a little bit of background, once again, watching those Bible Project videos I think are super helpful to give overviews. Uh, but for most scholarship, Luke is very much a Greek-influenced uh, individual, uh, whether he was fully Greek, whether he was a Jewish convert, uh, but he came from Greek, he's Hellenistic, whatever it may be. Um, but he certainly has a lot of Greek influence. He starts his book, even writing to Theophilus, which may be a, a person, or it may be uh, the same way we would uh, sometimes say beloved, uh, and then talk, talk about something. Uh, it could be God lover and, and talking to a group of people. But he starts it with a very much a Greek term and a Greek crowd in mind. And so, um, yeah. And so that's what we get. We may cover how the Gospels came together in another podcast, uh, but for now, let's keep moving into the birth of John the Baptist. Um, where yeah. we get, yeah. So if we look at verse six, we learn quickly about Zechariah and Elizabeth that they were righteous and walking blamelessly before God. And where do we just read that? In Genesis. We learn that about Noah as well. So that's a fun connection there. Yeah. And, and sometimes reading uh, through the Bible like this gets a little tricky because there's there's so many callbacks in this text to, to things we haven't read yet. So there's very much a callback to Abr- uh, Abram and, and, and Sarai, who we're about to read really heavily about. But uh, there's, there's, there's this barrenness of this whole couple, and uh, they're advanced in years. They're told they're going to have a son. They actually question how that's going to happen. There's all these beautiful connections uh, to origin stories, which I think Luke is after. I think Luke is going, look, we are telling uh, uh, a, a new covenant story that yeah. has a lot of patterns and symbols and connections to the old covenant. Um, and, and so it's it's fascinating to see some of those connections to think through, all right, how does this text relate to an Old Testament text? Um, and so, and I encourage you to break out your maps in this process, look at cities, look at where they are. It's always interesting to kind of watch where people go, watch what cities are they're in and why that matters. Uh, but we see that, that we see the birth of Jesus foretold. Um, and so, um, once again, uh, names, names matter too. Uh, 
even the name Jesus, like uh, Yeshua, uh, it's 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 Savior, Deliverer, the the Savior. Like that's his name, and and what a beautiful name it really is. And uh, but we're gonna see it with Zechariah. We're gonna see it with John. Like look up what these names mean. Uh, uh, maybe we'll link a resource that's really helpful to look up the names, what they mean, uh, because they matter. Uh, they they matter more than we do. We just pick, pick people's names because it's like, hey, that sounds good with my last name. Um, it rolls off the tongue. Uh, that's not how they. That's not how they would have thought. Names are like um, they they name kids almost like no, not way. as not as easy. <laughs> yeah, I don't name my kid Nebuchadnezzar or something like that. I guess that's not even a Jewish name, but um, yeah, the 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 way they would name was almost like. Um, they're, they're claiming something for their child's future. And, um, and either that child will grow up to be what that name is or, or sometimes grow up to be the opposite of what that name is. They, they fail to live into that role. And it's really important uh, to see that. So it's kind of neat to compare and contrast Zechariah's experience with an angel and his promise to Mary's because there's a ton of similarities. They were both visited by Gabriel. They both experienced fear and trembling, which by the way is what people generally do when they encounter angels in the (laughs) Bible. It's not Um, like just floating pleasant. It's like, Everybody falls on their face yeah. and doesn't okay. know what to do the about angels, it. Like, Get yeah. up. Okay. So anyway, they do that. What is the role of the child to be after the conception? Both of them ask how it's going to happen. And Zechariah shows a lack of faith, maybe. And Mary tends to or seems to believe and respond with faith. And then they both praise God through song and through prophecy. That is kind of a throwback to some different Old Testament passages. Yeah, there's a lot of Psalms that uh, get quoted uh, in 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 their songs. And uh, I think it's even interesting to note a little bit of what Luke's doing. Luke, um, uh, and I, I would argue, and, and we'll see this in a second when we start chapter two, I think Luke is writing, um, he's writing what is a gospel. It's a type of literature that uh, is is about a proclamation of a king and a kingdom, often a king's birth or a king's victory in the kingdom that they represent. And so uh, Luke is presenting the King Jesus and the kingdom of of, of heaven or the kingdom of God. And, and he's trying uh, to, to write about um, the, the victory, why it's important, but presenting it in a very upside down way um, in ways that are so compared and contrast to Rome, to, to Greek culture, to Herod, to, to the powers that be at the time. And so Mary sings her song and she says things like uh, the rich will be brought down. Uh, those in, in seats of power, seats of might will be brought down. And, and so, there's definitely ways that this is super subversive and super uh, uh, calling the, out the kingdom of God versus the kingdoms of the world, that, particularly at the time. Yeah, and if you have some time, go back and compare her song to Hannah's song, which I think is in First Samuel 2. And Hannah is basically doing the same thing. She's pregnant with a son who is going to basically over or take the place of Eli's sons, the priests, and kind of usher in a new kingdom as well. Yeah kingdom of kings i guess (laughs) yeah definitely uh and so we get the birth of jesus uh which uh, in it uh, once again we get a mention of herod we get a mention of caesar like these are people of power caesar over rome herod was likely one of the richest people to ever live in israel he built um, a lot of the things we know if you go visit the temple now the the stones that are put there that are still there were put there by herod Uh, he was wealthy he did a ton of things he built masada he built uh fortresses uh all throughout the area. He built uh, places for Caesar worship. Uh, He did all sorts of things in Israel because he had wealth and might. And yet um, he built this one fortress right next to Bethlehem. And what do we find? We find Jesus born in a a lowly state to these poor on the margins couple who uh, 
if you were telling the story of a king's arrival, you would include pomp and circumstance and all the people of significance. But the, the arrival of Jesus doesn't come with that narrative. It, it comes with um, a, a, a young couple who have this baby in a city that's relatively... Um, insignificant. They come from Nazareth too, which is also a place of relative insignificant. And they're, and they're born in the shadow, not, not in Herod's castle, but in the shadow of it, uh, in a stable. And not only that, but who do we find next? Shepherds who are also, uh, if you were to think of rungs on the ladder are pretty much on the bottom rung. Uh, and, uh, they would have been thought of as unclean. They would have uh, not been at the time, according to Torah interpretation, not allowed to worship in the temple without a certain cleansing process and all these other things. And so, but where they can't worship in the temple, they can worship this baby, Jesus, the King of Kings born in the manger. And they go and, and they see him. And it's such an amazing compare and contrast of how, uh, Kings and might and power and all that would have been presented at the time versus the story of the true king of kings who was bought, who has um, been born in sort of this lowly state. Yeah. And so uh, we continue the story. Jesus is presented at the temple, which you guys would have read. Um, I think, once again, I think the, the, the scripture is going out of its way to sort of highlight uh, Mary and Joseph's obedience. Uh, I think the two of them just show faithfulness to what God has asked them to do, uh, not only through the angels, but even just obeying what God has told them in the past through Torah. Like they are Torah observant. They are going through the washing ceremonies. They are doing the things they're supposed to do. Uh, but we also understand that they are poor. That they come to the temple with two birds, which uh, would have been a symbol if you were in, uh, reading this at the time. It would have been a very clear symbol. This couple comes from nothing because that's all you can bring uh you wouldn't bring the other animals that you you could bring because you're so impoverished all you could bring are birds and so yeah we see mary because of scripture is one of you know super blessed people in scripture and she's called blessed and she's called favor with the lord but her experience is that she remains poor and she's told a, a sword would pierce her side so it makes us kind of evaluate what it looks like to be, to be blessed, blessed by God yeah. and to be yeah. chosen by him. Yeah, and it's, it is so upside down um, from, I doubt many people in those times would have called Mary blessed. Um, I think they would have seen this unwed couple who were pregnant uh, and she probably went, even went around like, this is from the Lord. And I'm sure there was a lot of, yeah, sure it is. Yeah, or like, uh, maybe you're blessed because your husband didn't divorce you. Yeah. And, uh, you and, know. and is, is Joseph the father or somebody else the father? Um, and uh, all the cynicism, all the shame that would probably came with that. And not only that, but Herod in charge, according to Matthew, uh, is trying to kill them. And so they got to hightail it out of town to a country where they have no relatives. There's all this stuff where it's like, you're blessed. And then everything goes awry at that point on. And, and so um, she's blessed because of, because of God and her relationship with God and the fact that she's the, 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 the bearer of the king of kings. Like that is the blessing, uh, not all of her circumstances working out because that certainly doesn't seem to be the case. No. no. And so we had you read a couple Psalms uh, this week, uh, in, uh, Psalm 1 and Psalm 8. So why do we start with Psalm 1? Uh, I thought Psalm 1 seemed apropos, uh, as sort of not just the opening psalm of the book of Psalms, but I, I think it's, it is it is the opening book or the opening uh, uh, psalm because uh, it sets up the idea that um, th- there are those who would listen to scoffers or listen to the wicked, whatever, uh, and then there's those who, who listen to the word of God, who, who love it, who, uh, meditate on it and, and who, um, um, like 
eat it up. And they, they're like trees planted uh, where there's water, where there's growth. And so um, as you start this reading plan, we, we, we want you to know like there, there's blessing that comes from not only listening to the word of God, knowing it, but, but obeying it and uh, to be people that are um, consuming and, and loving the word of God um, are, are blessed people. Yeah, it's a good place to start to kind of define what blessed means. Like we just talked about with Mary, as you read through the Psalms, you'll see the word blessed a ton of times. And look at what it's defined as there, because it's probably going to be different than, you know, having a card that doesn't break down and a full bank account, like <laughs> we often times define blessed as in our culture. And then look at Psalm 8 too. This is what we would call is a messianic psalm. So a lot of the psalms that were written are basically pointing towards Christ. So read it knowing what we know about Christ coming to save us and deliver us. And then if you look at verses 6 through 8 in Psalm 8, you're going to see a little bit more of that cultural mandate that we continue to talk about. And so next week, uh, you're going to be reading some more of the Noah story, and we're going to get into a little bit of Abraham as well, and then some more chapters in Luke. Uh, so uh, uh, just as sort of my uh, hint, uh, just so you start learning to, to spot chiasms and stuff like that, the Noah story is one big chiasm. And I'll give you a hint that some of the numbers and the way the numbers play out uh, will help you tr- sort of find the center of that chiasm. So we'll talk about it next week, uh, but I hope uh, it gives you a little bit of tools to help spot that. Yeah, chiam- chiasms for me at the beginning were really confusing, but they get super fun. And I I promise the more you practice looking for them, the more you'll find. And I'm not super great at it yet, but it is really fun to discover a chiasm. I'd encourage you to keep an eye out for more cultural mandates. Where do we see more of that reiteration, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth? And why is it there in that passage again? So keep an eye out for that. So thanks for joining us and we'll we'll talk to you next week. Thanks. Thanks.